Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So this week's episode is with the legend, amazing, amazing man that is Peter McCleave. And for those of you who listen to the podcast regularly, you will hear a segment in our podcast where I talk about an organization called DKMS and how I am a proud ambassador trying to raise the awareness of this amazing organization that are dedicated to getting as many people as possible on the blood stem cell registry on a mission to delete blood cancer. And they need as many eligible adults to donate their blood stem cells to the registry and to sign up. And the conversations that we've been having behind the scenes is how do you bring this to life? There are so many causes I didn't know anything about DKMS and that came to me because I gave blood and then some, I posted a picture that I'd given blood and I was super proud and super chuffed. And then DKMS came to me, just DM me and I'm sure they do this with everybody. It wasn't, I'm nobody special and said, would you consider giving your blood stem cells? And I was like, what's that? Like, how do you do that? And it kind of sent me on a rabbit hole and I've just become super, super passionate. And I really want to raise the awareness and how do you do that when there are so many good causes, so many charities, people always asking for your time, people always asking for your money. And now people are asking for your blood and now we want your your blood stem cells. So a lady called Louise who works for DKMS and who's been on the podcast said, Tara, you need to speak to Pete. You just need to speak to him. He's the most inspirational, amazing person ever. And he is looking for his blood stem cell match and has been diagnosed with myeloma, blood cancer, and he's unable to find his match. So today I bring you my interview with Pete. We talk about obviously his diagnosis, how he manages it on a day-to-day basis, what he has inspired to do by creating his own campaign. We talk about he is an Ironman athlete. And we talk about the mindset and why he chose and why he likes those ultra endurance events. And it was just such a lovely conversation. I really hope that you enjoy listening. And I know I asked you to share it. I do want you to share this one. I really do want you at the end or during, you can stop the episode during this podcast and go on to www.10,000donors.com read more about Pete's story, click on the UK hand and sign up to the DKMS blood stem cell registry today. 
Hi, Pete. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Tara. Really appreciate the invite. Thank you. You're a pro at this. I've seen you. You've been on the BBC. <laughs> You're good at getting your own PR and press. <laughs> I just blag it. I'm a, I'm a serial blagger. I tend to find myself in situations and just um, just do what I can at the time. Oh, well, for my listeners, today is this episode is really, really important. You will have heard on our podcast a little plug to an organisation called DKMS, where I'm an ambassador, trying to raise the profile of this organisation and this charity to get more people on their blood stem cell registry. And my particular interest is the diverse element. There are not enough people from a black and Asian minority ethnic backgrounds on the registry. And I am learning every day about this organisation And Louise, who is my contact there, said, you need to speak to Pete Tara. You need to speak to him. She goes on about you all of the time. You've got a very special and unique story. And hopefully this will bring it to life because we were just talking before we went on air to say, how do you, with so many good causes, so many charities, how do you get people to stop and listen and act? So could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do today? Of course, yeah. My name is Peter McCleave, and up until five years ago, I was leading a reasonably what you might deem might to be normal and, and positive life. Had a career, wife, kids, dogs, very, very standard, not particularly exciting to write home about, but I was happy and we were happy and, and things seemed to be going well. I love my sport. I was competing in triathlons and it was actually through sport, fortuitously, that I I found myself in the situation I'm in today with a very unexpected diagnosis. I had completed a race in 2016 in Wales. It was an Ironman triathlon. That was my challenge to myself for the year. So spent the year training, working hard, all the things you you would do to, to prepare for that particular race. Race day came, felt a little bit ropey, but pushed on through, completed the race and was, you know, was, was planning on celebrating that evening, the, the completion. Anyway, didn't feel great, went to bed early, woke up feeling worse, and then worse the next day. Went to the doctors when I came home, and I'd uh, picked up a bit of a heady concoction of pneumonia, sepsis, and legionnaires, which was totally unexpected, but led to me being um, blue-lighted to the Council of Chester Hospital to be hooked up to antibiotics and really zapped full of stuff to try and settle things. Anyway, I won't bore you with the details, but got over that, planning races for 2017. But fast forward four months, my recovery wasn't going the way it should have done. And uh, it led to me having uh, an MRI scan uh, on my my upper chest. My my breathing was laboured. Anyway, the MRI scan, this is where it's kind of fortuitous, picked up on lesions on my my, my bone structure, my arms, my shoulders, and my my rib cage. These lesions looked like little pot marks. And it was was as if something was breaking down my skeleton. So they did a full body scan skull, arms, legs, you name a bone in the body, and it looked like a Swiss cheese. Did some blood tests, and a couple of days later, I found myself driving home, get a phone call from the doctor, say, you need to come in, uh, Mr. McLean, you need to have a chat. I, being my usual self, tried to fob it off and said I was too busy, but anyway, they were very insistent. And it led to me sitting down with my doctor and with the very, very stern look that only doctors appear to be able to, uh, to, to give, they delivered the news that I've been uh, diagnosed with myeloma, my reaction to that was, what do I have to do? More antibiotics, get down the gym again. How do I get over this? Unfortunately, myeloma is a blood cancer. It's not something I'd heard of before. And uh, I was told it was an incurable blood cancer. And because of the, the severe nature of what had manifested in me, 
that I might only have seven years left to live, and that was five years ago. It brings us to where we are today, now at the pointy end of that particular prognosis. But in the meantime, I've managed to find myself in a reasonably stable and steady state, feeling good. And after, after it was two solid years of chemotherapy, uh, I decided to do something about my situation. My, my, progno my prognosis of seven years and the diagnosis of myeloma came with a caveat. And that caveat was, if I could find somebody to donate their stem cells to me, then I would have every opportunity to live beyond my seven year prognosis. That was what was in my control. I could do something about that. And I just stopping, stopping for a second for anyone who's not aware of what a stem cell is right now, as you're listening to, to Tara's podcast, you'll have billions of these things swimming around your body. They are the precursor to every single cell in your body. So before a hair cell became a hair cell or skin, skin, blood, blood, it was a stem cell. I believe every single one of us has a genetic twin somewhere in the world. So if you can find your genetic twin and you happen to need a stem cell transplant, they can be donated to someone in need like myself and grow into healthy cells. And, and in some cases, it will cure an, an illness. Unfortunately, myeloma can't be cured, but it can be managed. And, and you know, the, the inevitable pushed further down, down the line. So I started a campaign called 10,000 Donors with a view to simply raising awareness of stem cell technology, getting people in the register and trying to write what is currently a very, very imbalanced wrong. In the UK, only 2% of our population are on the stem cell registry and globally it gets even worse, it's 0.4%. There's a real imbalance, not just in numbers, but in diversity. So for people who are from any minority ethnic background, you are best have a 20% chance of finding your match versus someone who's white Caucasian, European heritage, 60% is the best, the best chance. For me, I'm still searching for that match. And although I look white Caucasian, genetically, I'm a bit of a bit of a mongrel, you might want to say. I won't be winning Crofts in the near future. <laughs> my, my family hail from Southeast Asia, an island called Macau. So my, my background is Macanese. It's, it's a blend of Chinese and Portuguese, Macanese. Uh, with Irish and English. And there's only about 40,000 people of Macanese heritage currently registered globally. So there's not many of us, which makes it more difficult to find that match. But I still believe that match for me is out there. And I believe there's a match for all of us out there. And, and my job as part of my campaign is to cut through the noise of, of, of the world we live in and just try to explain the simplicity of how every single one of us, between the ages of 16 and 55, can potentially be a lifesaver and, and sign up to register to donate stem cells. You started your campaign for 10,000 donors. How many donors have you managed to get signed up to date? The campaign was started back in, yeah, about, about three years ago now, I think it was. And we have now registered over 90,000 people, which is brilliant. Uh, we've had 17 confirmed matches for patients. And just this week, actually... Uh, a friend of mine, Alex, who I used to work with, he had donated his stem cells to a, to a chap in Boston in America, and they met yeah. for the first time and, over Zoom, and it was hugely powerful. And it just, you know, it brought the, it brought the whole process full circle. We, we'd gone from my situation, starting a campaign, raising awareness. Alex registered to donate stem cells. He was matched with Patrick, his genetic twin in Boston. He donated his stem cells. Patrick, a man who at the time was given 3% chance of survival, had ended up in a coma three times and was really 
really looking looking poorly. Got his donation from Alex, and he is fit, healthy, well. You look at him; he's, he's like he's a machine. He bench presses trucks for fun. He's an absolutely <laughs> phenomenal human being. And you you you, you talk to him, and you realise what it means that you know Alex has saved his life, and they've got that connection. They 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 view each other as brothers now, and it, it's wonderful to see. It just goes to show it works. It's just a numbers game, and it's using these wonderful opportunities that you've afforded me today, Tara, to talk about this and explain how we can all help one another. What's it like living with this diagnosis? Is it like, you, I don't know, like a, was it like a ticking time bomb? How do you just live your life to the fullest knowing that you're trying to find your match and you're helping other people to find their match, which must be amazing, but every day you're thinking, am I, you know, I going to get the call? Am I going to get my match? It's a really interesting question, and, it, and it, there's so many nuances to it. I, I went through so many stages of fighting the diagnosis, being angry, being sad, being upset, getting, you know, why me? The question, why me? What had I done? But I had a moment, probably a couple of months into, in, into the diagnosis, where I just had to take a step back and ask myself the real question. It's not why me, but why not me? There's nothing special about me at all. And unfortunately, one in two of us are likely to receive a cancer diagnosis. At the time, I didn't like having to face that question, but it, it was kind of a cathartic release in a strange way. Once I, I found a way to accept it, and let go of those things out of my control. I was always going to be on chemo. I'm on chemo today. I'll be on drugs until, until I, I, I'm no longer here to take drugs. That's just a fact. don't like it, but there's no fighting it. I'm very blessed that the world of science and medicine has delivered the opportunity to keep my cancer in remission for a long enough period of time that hopefully things will change. So I, I found a way to let go of much of what I couldn't control. I, I, could, I could push it to one side and focus what was in my control. And a campaign like 10,000 Donors was all about me doing something proactive, not just to help myself, but to help other people who are in this situation. So how do I, I mean, I've not, I've not developed a, a, a monk-like, a zen-like approach <laughs> to life. I can't say I, nothing bothers me. The kids still wind me up in the morning and, and I get annoyed at football and rugby and things I, I shouldn't really get annoyed at. But I think just, just finding a way to identify those things outside of my control and really knuckle down on what I can influence has made a big difference on how I, how I get through this. Unfortunately, there is always a cloud on the horizon that's something which unfortunately will never go away. There are days where it does get me down, but I'll go out for a walk with the dog, have a cup of tea, just find ways to, to sort of push on through it. Because I, I, I accept it's never going away. Unfortunately, what I have is, is not going to disappear. So that, that's, that's there. And, and some days are better than others. You get a bit tired, like someone chemo, three weeks out of four and will be foreseeable. And that comes with, with its own consequences. But just find, finding things I can, I can do. I, I don't want to be sitting around doing nothing. I enjoy being proactive and I enjoy engaging with people and, and meeting new people and doing stuff. So a bit of pressure has been taken off in that I probably don't have to worry too much about you know, the state of <laughs> the UK pension system. <laughs> so that's one thing I don't need to worry too much about. And, and it allows me to do a bit more of what I would like to do. And, and it's given me a, a, strangely a purpose I've had a wonderful career. I've met some brilliant people and I've thoroughly 
enjoyed most of what I've done, but I've never felt such a sense of connection to a job in the way in which I have with this campaign is something which I was explaining to you before. I've spent my life working in the private sector, but as a, as a permanent employee, and I've always I've always loved the idea of having the courage like yourself to do my own business, step off the precipice of support that you get in the private sector and, and, and permanent employment and do my own thing. But that's, kind of, that's what my campaign has, has given me, something which I've been able to build and grow. And seeing, seeing over 90,000 people register is great, but seeing 17 people matched is even better. And that just goes to show it's working. Definitely, definitely. So can I ask you, do you have private healthcare? At the moment, yes. Did you have it before your diagnosis? Yes. It came, luckily, it came with work because the chemo I'm on at the moment isn't available on the NHS. So I'm very, very yeah. blessed. Very blessed. It's always, I don't know if it's a difficult one, but I think no one thinks it's going to happen. And when you have the opportunity, you know, like, I don't know if you're getting life cover and things like that. When you're younger, you think, oh, an extra 20 quid, an extra 30 quid a month. You know, that's like, an, I don't know, a cheap night out. But, you know, like you don't want to. You, you, you question whether is it worth it. And hopefully you'll never need it. But one day you may need it. So that pressure of the future and your family is, may, is, is reduced a little bit because you've got that cover. You can get that care. You can get that treatment. I think that's a really important message. I've got three children. You just don't know what tomorrow is going to bring you don't and I was one of those people I've had a few sliding doors moments in my life and I I wish I could go back and change it I remember when Jen and I got our first mortgage and the advisor we're sitting down talking to said showed you I'd recommend you set up a critical illness cover just in case and nah too young no didn't do it didn't want to do it blah 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 foolish foolish and uh, you, you sit here today, and you know, I was 37, I think, when I got diagnosed. Never, never on my, never on the radar. Never, I was young, fit, I was running triathlons, for goodness sake. But cancer is indiscriminate, doesn't care. And I'm not saying people should worry and live their lives in fear at all, but I am very, very much of the opinion now that sometimes the money you might spend, 20 quid that you might put towards a couple of beers, it's worth really thinking about. And as a younger man, I was stupid. I was barely able to look after myself until the age of 40. And I'm 44 tomorrow and I'm still making poor decisions. But I know I would counsel myself very differently. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would, I would say, and I'm, I'm not a financial advisor, but I would have anyone... The reason why I got the private medical care was through work. And the problem I have is that um, I, I'm in a situation now where the private medical cover, because it's tied to work, might be, might be taken away from me this year uh, because of conversations I need to have with my current employer, kind of out of my control. And it's great. You always get discounts when you get these policies through a business, and, and it's great to have that sort of thing. But I would, again, just suggest people look outside. Try and keep your health care and your insurances distinct from your employer, wh- where you can and where you can afford to, because it takes away that that pressure. If, if your employer doesn't wish to employ you anymore, then you're going to lose that cover. And as someone who now has an illness... Yeah, you can't get then cover. You no, know, I'm, I'm untouchable. Yeah. That's just the way it is. So I, you know, but 
if they take the private healthcare and then they take the chemo, then who knows what the world's going to look like. So again, I don't mean to be a doom monger by industry. No, it's the reality, isn't it? It's the reality. And I think I have these conversations all the time. And just, I was saying to my osteopath, I've got private health. You know, I need an MRI. So we're both, I don't like to say the word, you are. I'm like a wannabe amateur athlete. I do ultra marathons. I need an MRI and I can get that. I can get that scan. And I'm so grateful. If I need to go to the dentist, it's like, give me, <laughs> give me everything. I'm covered. And I think that for those of us that work in or support the NHS, it's, oh, I feel scared to say it, but it's not if you can it's nice to have that assurance the nhs is amazing 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 um but it's having those conversations around the cover and if you do need i need to invest in my healthcare because i'm my business if i don't if i can't run this business you know that what are we going to do so that investment and those conversations and I've had a lady called Claire Fuller on the podcast and we've talked about lasting power of attorney and things like that and yeah it's horrible grown-up conversations but if you don't have them one day you're going to wish that you did have them. So it is a pleasure to be bringing the Business of Healthcare podcast in partnership with DKMS UK. DKMS are a blood cancer charity on a mission to find a blood stem cell match for everyone who needs it. I am proud to share that I am an ambassador for DKMS UK and my particular interest in partnering with them is that as it stands, fewer than 3% of patients from a black or mixed ethnic background are on the stem cell blood registry. We need more people to sign up to the registry and more people to spread the message. So I hope you will join me in doing so. To sign up to the registry, please visit www.dkms.org.uk to get involved. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a walking example of that. Uh, as I say, I, I, I'm, we're in a position right now where we're able to pay the bills, but we all know what the rest of the year is going to look like. Electricity bills are going sky high and who knows what's going to happen. But it's, it's an interesting one because especially when you're younger, you want, a, you want a silly car or you want the clothes and you might sacrifice things like the food you eat. I, I'm a massive proponent of sport, health and looking after yourself, despite the fact my body wants to give me a shoeing. I do try to keep it in, in reasonable shape as much as I can do. But, you know, so I remember being I would I would eat rubbish and this is going in your body you're eating this all because I wanted a new stereo or something daft like that so I'm saving my money to buy a stereo and eating pot noodles all the time and don't get me wrong pot noodles are a great snack occasionally but not five days a week so I would say you you the word you used before was investment and it is an investment whether it's in you know keeping yourself you know going for a run or just going to get some fresh air outside for five minutes or thinking about what you're eating. You're investing in your body because once, once this goes, then, then what do you have? It doesn't matter what all the other material possessions. You look after this now, and especially the mental element of this whole thing. The, the great thing about the world today is there's such a, a positive conversation around managing the men, your mental health and the mental well-being that you have. And there are so many things that we can do that don't cost anything that really do add value at, to us as people. But look, looking after your body, is, is such an important thing to do and, un, and underappreciated, I think. It really is underappreciated. 
do you can you still compete in these ultra marathons? No, and, not so much. Well, I, I, I'm tr- I, I try to keep myself fit to other things now. I um, as part of the myeloma that I have, one of the one of the side effects is it, it does damage your skeleton. That was one of the the, the markers of, of, of how I got found out. To be fair, and I broke my back in three places about four years ago. I my spine started to collapse because it was just weakening. And that's left, it's, it's fine. They've filled it full of cement and the, you know, the wonders of medicine have, have sorted it, but it has left it slightly compromised. So I can, there are certain things I can't do anymore, which is a real shame. But you know, low impact sports, fine, absolutely fine with that. Um, I do keep prodding my, um, prodding my doctor with questions around maybe, maybe this year, maybe it's better, maybe it's stronger. And I get um, subtly, subtly asked just, just to pipe down a little bit. <laughs> I thought I just kind of figured the more, the more I asked. The, <laughs> so when you say your campaign, is it a campaign? Is it a business? What, what is it? Or is it, is it just a campaign or not just, is it a huge campaign? It's, it is just a campaign for now. I've looked at maybe turning it into a charitable trust, but uh, that, that hasn't panned out just yet and what I don't want to do is, is overburden it with bureaucracy and unnecessary admin that often comes with turning things into a charity I'm happy to be a marketing tool and a, and, and a voice for this particular subject and find creative ways to to cut through like we said before the noise of a very very busy and and positively populated charitable marketplace so for now I'm okay doing my presentations, writing the articles, do, doing podcasts like this, uh, or, you know, or, or even coming up with sizable projects to really capture the imagination of people and hopefully just get them to think twice about maybe registering. It, it doesn't need to be any more than that at the moment. What it looks like this time next year, who knows? We're, we're getting close to 100,000 registrants, which is brilliant, uh, but we need millions for every... I mean, it's just, just using the numbers that the campaign has drummed up. It's about every four and a half thousand people, you might get a match. And those, those are the odds we're, we're battling against. That's what we're, we're looking to bridge that particular, that particular set of odds, you know, for want of a better term. But more, 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 just keep talking, keep doing these things. And as I said, the, the projects, when they come, uh, we try to make them sizable and, and interesting. Did the Crumble Rally a couple of years ago, took a... 200 pound banger around Europe and raised about, I think, 40,000 quid for, for one of the charities, which was brilliant. It needs to be there. It needs to be there. We got a song in the charts a couple of years ago. That was oh. brilliant. We were very, you know, that, that, again, these big projects that I would never have, never have got involved in, but you don't need to be an expert. You just need to have the courage to step over the precipice and give it a go. And it's amazing what you can achieve when you just give it a go. Hopefully, We'll have a documentary to uh, to talk about this time next year. We're we're, we're working on got the promo. The final cut, the promo came through yesterday, and that's that's amazing. I'm not a documentary maker by any stretch, but we've had this film professionally made, and it looks well, it's it's a short to try and use it to promote. But it looks it looks like we're taking it seriously, and that's what I hope producers will will take an interest in. So you talked about just the opportunity comes, you just get stuck in, but. You have gone from like a normal person to a personality and that you do have a media presence and you have to public speak. Have you always, being in front of the camera or being in front of the mic, does that come naturally to you or have you had to work at that? Not at all. 
not at all. I, 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 I've never been asked that, but you've you just sparked my, my first foray into public speaking was a, an absolute disaster. I remember it well, and I get reminded of it by my, my friends who I went to university with. I, at school, it wasn't something we were ever asked to do. I was never part of the drama club, so I was never on stage. And I was a very, very nervous, twitchy teenager, I guess. I was just, I was, part, I was more part of the grunge scene. So it was long hair, <laughs> head down, <laughs> listening to Nirvana. I was one of, one of those guys. And I remember in my first year at university, we were asked to present part of, part of the topic we've been studying. And I was, I'd never done any of this speaking before. And there was like 35 of my friends there. And I, I walked up, I had a can of Guinness with me at about 10 o'clock in the morning to try and turn it into a joke. And I had a swig of this Guinness and I babbled on for 10 minutes and it was abject silence. I hadn't, <laughs> no one asked any questions. And even the, 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 the lecturer said, right, we're done. It was awful. And it properly knocked my confidence because I just, I just didn't come naturally to me at all. And then I did, I, I, I've always enjoyed working with people. So the career path I took was in, in management and slowly found my way into projecting a confidence, even if it was never there. There was an, an absolute inner fear of talking in front of people, but you're getting paid to do it. So you find a way and all of a sudden you realize that everyone is in a, in a weird way winging it. No one's an expert and, and, and you have to, project it might not be there inside you but no one can see inside you and I had this realization slowly you do a few courses and I found myself being able to pretend that I was confident pretend not that I didn't know what I was talking about but I was able to project it in a way that people started to see there was a sense of credibility and so I started to grow it was the it sounds terrible it was maybe it was the fake it before you make it thing and I was able to build up my own confidence by projecting this. And that it was, it was be the change you want to see sort of thing. And it suddenly started to come and I actually started to believe what I was saying. And I started to feel much more confident and enthused about what I was doing. And so it was, it was, this is over 15 odd years. So I went from someone who was very incapable and not confident to finding a way to deliver it because I was being, you know, that was my job. So then suddenly, believing what I was what I was doing and I, I thoroughly enjoy it now I've been lucky enough to present in front of some really sizable groups of people um you know six seven hundred people was 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 one of the one of the presentations that I gave and I loved it it was so and I and, and I think when you've got when you believe in what you're talking about it makes a big difference I think it comes across in the way you communicate I guess if I was talking about something I had no interest in it may be a bit more difficult, but when you're talking about a subject which you, you believe in, you know what you're talking about, I think it makes it much easier. And maybe I was just an inner show off, I guess. <laughs> maybe, I, <laughs> maybe I didn't realize how much of a show off I really was. <laughs> so how do you balance family, work, your camp and your campaign and your health? I don't think I've, I don't think I've got it balanced or I don't think I've got it right. Um, what tips are balance? I guess I'm, I'm often too willing to sacrifice family in the, in the pecking order to focus on the, the other things. I, I recognise I often take my wife and two boys for granted a little bit too much. I try not to. I'm aware of it. And I try not to stray too far ahead. But 
I when I when I, I know and Jen thankfully respects the fact that when I'm into a project, I'm in and I know and I, I tunnel vision straight in and one I, I just want to make things happen and push on. So uh, I do know I recognise that I do I don't have the balance. I don't have it right. When I want to go out and do fitness things. I like to do that. That makes me feel good. That's my hobby. So I tend to be doing, you know, I'll get up early in the morning to do that. Work with the, you know, these projects, the campaigns tend to come. And then I try, you know, certainly make a real effort to be, to be the guy who takes his lads to football and rugby and all the other things that they do. I like to, I like to do that. Um, but finding the balance is an effort. It's, it's, it's a daily, it's yeah. a daily battle. because Jen runs her own business. She's got her own priorities. She, she does her thing. I've got my thing and we jump yep. in the middle somewhere. I hear you. So going back to your Ironman days, so you say it's a hobby. It's more than a hobby. What is that thing inside you that made you think, I want to put my train and put my, you know, like it's painful, it's time consuming. Sometimes it's boring. Um, sometimes it's amazing. It's not all hobbies give you that <laughs> you know like there is something deeper than I just like doing it what is that thing for you when you have when you think back to the, the the endurance bit what is it that you're looking for when you do that I think the honest answer is insecurity okay. I think that's the honest answer I'm a bit I guess when I was younger a bit a bit like Martin McFly from Back to the Future if someone called me chicken I'd be the fool turning around to prove to them I wasn't a chicken and so when it comes to the endurance events, I didn't think I'd ever be able to do one. The reason why I, I set up to do the Ironman is because I couldn't, I really couldn't swim, to be quite honest. I, um, it, was, it was back in 2015, I met a guy who's now a good friend of mine. He'd done an Ironman and I, and I remember seeing the t-shirt and he had the logo on his, on his shoulder. So, ah, oh, I could never do that. And he said, well, you, you could if you committed to it. And I walked away, I'm chatting, could I? I can't swim. And, you know, I haven't ridden a bike for about 20 years, so I couldn't, but it just wouldn't go away. And then I started to challenge myself, well, you used to be, you know, I used to be a sprinter. My attention span is, is that of a, it's that of a baby chimpanzee. That, that's where, <laughs> that's, that's me. I'm just always looking for the next thing. And so the thought of being sat on a bike for five hours, six hours, makes, it made no sense. And that, in, I guess that insecurity was, well, you're not good enough then. If you're not good enough, well, don't, don't bother. And it just chewed away at me. And I've had this on many, many occasions. And my, my approach to most things is, if you're going to do something, go big or don't bother. So if you can do a triathlon, yeah, you could do it. Sprint triathlon, nothing, not, not playing it down at all. But if I'm going to do it, let's do this one. And so, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And what is that one? Is that 70.3? The sprint is a shorter one. It's, it's about, I think it's about a 500 meter swim, maybe a, a 10K bike and then a, maybe a 5K run. So it's, it's, a, it's a great, great race. It's just a lot shorter. And then I thought, let's, well, fine, if you're going to do it, do it. So I end up signing up. And once you signed up, you're in. You tell people, then you're definitely in. <laughs> but you're not, but you're not. Do you know what I mean? You think that you are, but you can. You can be like, oh, my, oh, I slept in. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. Again, it's maybe it's, it's this uh, this nagging this nagging that that is in my that is in my psyche. I recognise it that 
I don't believe I'm good enough. And so I have to do these things to almost prove, I don't know improving it too. I don't know improving it too, but that, that's what drove me to, to do it, that I couldn't really swim, so I had to learn to swim. And it was just this, this change in mindset. And the real, there were, some couple, there were a couple of moments as part of the training, which really, you know, they, they made me realize how much more capable I was. And it wasn't just Ironman. There's been other moments in life which have brought me to this. But there was one in particular. I was doing my very first half distance. It was part of the training. And it was six in the morning, cold, cold morning in Wales. I'm standing there by the lake ready to go. And I'd done all my training in my wetsuit, but never with the triathlon suit underneath. So I get in the water and all of a sudden I can't breathe. And I'm thinking, what is going on? And I'm watching the pack swimming away. I was right at the back and I'm watching this pack of people splashing, swimming away. I remember looking to my right and there was an outcrop of rocks. I thought, I've got, I'm just going to sit on them. I'm done. And then I stopped and I said, I'm arguing with myself. It felt forever. I'm arguing. You start swimming. I can't swim. And then I realized. (laughs) You're like a crazy person. I was a crazy person. (laughs) crazy and I'm in the water and then I realized because I'd never trained with my tricycle on I had this extra piece of elastic underneath and I couldn't breathe because of that so anyway pull the blooming wetsuit down loosen the tricycle all of a sudden my chest opens up and it was just thank god I didn't listen to my to my give up voice and I pushed on through and then I start to catch the pack and anyway it was one of those where I realized that you don't have to listen to what your brain is telling you all the time you are way more capable than you might think in the situation gives you. So that was one. And the other, I don't want to bore you with triathlon stories, but the other, oh, the other moment that really sort of sunk home was on the red carpet, having completed the full Ironman in Wales. And in my head, it was, you know, I always thought I'm going to skip down the red carpet. It's going to be euphoric. I'm going to be celebrating. It's going to be the most amazing feeling in the world. And I remember running down the carpet, I saw my family to the right and gave them a hug and all this sort of stuff and I crossed the finish line and I'm waiting for this explosion of elation and I felt nothing felt empty I just felt numb to the whole thing I thought is that it and I'm, I, I, it was a really weird reaction and on reflection it was it, obviously I was tired and, 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 all, and all of that. But on reflection, I just underestimated what Ironman actually was. The race was a bit of a byproduct to the real fun. And the fun was the training. The fun, I was just about, definitely, absolutely. Well, I would, if I would, I would say not definitely, not everybody will think that, but I think I like the training. I am better. So it's like, I'm better in my life. Everything is better when I'm training for something. And then I hit that moment in the race where I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? You signed up for this, Tara. You're paying for this. And then you get to the end and halfway, you know, you start to see, like, you know, you're going to finish it. And then you're like, what am I going to do next? And I had a period last year where I did quite a few events. I did. Sorry for people that are not interested, just fast forward this bit. Finn Robinson is listening. If you're listening to this, you'll like this bit. When I did, I did a hundred mile race, a bike ride, 60 mile bike ride, 31 mile run, 36 mile run. And after it, in four or five weeks, I was like depressed and people were like, don't worry about it. And then from September to December, I was like, is this what depression feels like? Like, why? <laughs> I've got three kids, but I was like, and I've got a business, but I was like, what is my purpose? <laughs> like, That's what I do. It's so strange. It's, it's, it's strange. 
it is strange, but you articulate it brilliantly. I felt sad. All of a sudden it was, well, my life. <laughs> Sorry, my kids. Life. I'm not getting up at four in the morning to go swimming in Manchester. What am I going to do? And I, I, I felt that as well. I did it. But then you realise that that is part of you. And I think the people who love sport, especially the endurance stuff, whether it's a, a form of addiction or not, I don't know, but it taps into you, your brain and it's a sense of achievement every time you get up and do it. It's the feeling of the endorphins pumped around when you've done it as well. And, and yeah, the, the race for, for me was a bit of a byproduct. I'm repeating myself now, but the actual bit yeah. doing the Ironman was the training, was the building up, was the commitment to something which was so outlandishly silly that it made sense at the time. Ooh, I think I should start like a, a, a different podcast, like a sport podcast. So I could talk about this all day long. But for those of you listening that are not into sport, I think the lesson, I think the key takeaways you can get from this conversation, even if you're not interested in sport, is that you can do so much more than you think that you can do. And you said, like, don't listen to those negative thoughts. Like, you are not your thoughts and you can observe your thoughts. And I have done a podcast. I don't know what episode it is. have done a podcast on this where it's like, I think it's called, you are, you, you are the observer of your thoughts and you can choose what it, what it means. You don't have to. It can just mean this is a bit difficult but I can try, or this is too difficult. I give up. I'm crap. I can't do it. And it's your choice and only you can push through that. And I think there are so many people listening to this podcast where you might be having a crap time at work. You might want to do something slightly different. You might want to set up your own business. You might want to get promotion. And there is that fear that's like, can I, like, can I, and you make up this big story of what if you do it and you fail and the truth is, if it, it just doesn't work and you learn, OK, well, I'm not going to do that again. Or maybe I could do something different or maybe it was the wrong time. You don't have to. It doesn't mean that you can't. It just means it didn't work if it didn't work in that moment in time. Everything you said, there's, um, there's a book I read a while ago by a guy called Daniel Kahneman. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow. And he, 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 he won a Nobel prize for this i think it was he, he sets out the brain the way in which it works in very simplistic terms because i'm not smart enough to say the way he did but you've got your thinking brain and you've got your feeling brain and they are constantly interacting and, and he's proven this is the way in which the brain works but the feeling brain is in the driving seat and the thinking brain is in the passenger seat so we're driven a lot by what we feel and those feelings are all made up of historical experiences things that we've, we've done and the thinking brain you'd think the thinking brain would be the one in control but it's not the thinking brain is constantly trying to to override the driver of the feeling brain and it's that interaction between i can't do this i'm feeling terrible because i feel terrible i know i can't do it it's this cycle of often you know that that makes you feel or if it's positive I'm feeling great it's fantastic yeah jumping off a cliff is a great idea you know to go diving and on my holidays in ibiza not necessarily, but it's just that interaction of being aware that this, this conflict is often going on in your own mind kind of goes some way to explaining that, that reticence some people have to, to, to fight through. You know, the wall, I think you'll, you'll recognise as, 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 as an ultra runner. You'll, you'll hit a wall sometimes and your, your body's telling you, I feel terrible, I can't take one more step. But you can take one yeah. more step. And it's amazing when you get through it, a bit like me with my swimming the swimming uh, problem I have 
you can do it. You can push on through. And yes, it hurts, but you've got more to give. And, and just recognizing that resilience is a huge part of what I, I, I try to talk about a lot when it comes to my own situation and, and the, the, our ability to take ownership of our situation and do something. And that resilience is it's a hugely important part of all of us. It's not unique to anyone. You don't have to be an Olympian. You don't have to, you know, you don't get out to be a super business woman. Anyone can do it. You've just got to recognize it within yourself. So let's get practical. We'll talk about DKMS because that's, we'll talk about DKMS. Um, how do you join the DKMS uh, Blood Stem Cell Registry? What do you need to do? So I would direct you to my 10,000 donors campaign page, 10,000donors.com. On there, about a third of the way down the, the main page, you'll see links to every single global registry okay. anywhere in the world, wherever you are. In, in the UK, um, I, I point people towards DKMS because if you're aged between 17 and 55 and in good health, you can register to become a stem cell donor. So if you click on the link on 10,000donors.com, it'll take you to DKMS. They will, you fill in a little form, they will send you three cheek swabs. Now these cheek swabs are exactly the same thing that we've been shoving up our noses for the last two years for COVID tests. Only you don't shove it up your nose, you rub one on your left cheek, one on your right cheek, the third one just around your mouth for, for a minute, then you let them dry, you pop them back in the prepaid envelope, send it back to DKMS in the post, cost you nothing, and within six weeks, your swabs will be processed and then you will be on that register. And you may never get called up to donate, but at the very least, what you've done is improve the odds for patients who are in need of a stem cell donor, like myself with a blood cancer diagnosis. Thank you so, so much. I really, I really love talking with you. Honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed being part of this. Thank you, Tara. My pleasure. so much for joining us if you like what you hear i would absolutely love it if you left us an itunes rating and five star review i know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on twitter at thc primary care on instagram at thc primary care and on linkedin just look for tara humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do it's really really funny you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.